Welcome back to A Fine Time for Healing, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And uh, as a reminder, if you haven't subscribed to the Randy Fine YouTube channel, please do it um, right now. And if you like a video, give me a thumbs up. Leave me comments so I know that what you like, what you don't like. Um, and I just want to hear what you have to say about the shows that I do. Today I have an extraordinary show for you. Today we're going to be talking about borderline personality disorder with a leading expert. A leading expert is Gerald J. Kreisman. Is it Kreisman? Yeah. Okay, MD, um, who is a psychiatrist and leading expert on borderline personality disorder. He is co-author of the bestseller, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me which is considered a classic of both the popular and academic literature on BPD and has been completely revised and updated in 2010. Um, his book, Sometimes I Act Crazy, describes how families and friends confront the disorder. Um, Dr. Kreisman produces a blog for Psychology Today. He lectures widely in the US and abroad and is in private practice in St. Louis, Louis Missouri. Welcome, Dr. Kreisman. Great to have you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. What is borderline personality disorder? Well, borderline personality disorder is one of the 10 defined personality disorders that are generally accepted, um, including such things as uh, obsessive compulsive personality, paranoid personality. BPD is, is one of the most diagnosed it's that uh, of those of those ten defined as, uh, by a number of criteria that involve um, elements of tendencies to see the world in extremes of black and white, right or wrong, good or bad, uh, characterized by uh, tremendous mood swings depending on what is in their environment. They are happy walking from the kitchen to the dining room, and if somebody says something that upsets them, they become depressed, maybe even suicidal. They can be uh, self-sabotaging self frequently with impulsive behaviors, sometimes uh, cutting on themselves, uh, hurting themselves in ways like that. They have frantic fears of abandonment, uh, feelings of emptiness, an unstable sense of identity tending not to know exactly what they're looking for. They are a Democrat when they're with Democrats or Republican when they're with Republicans, but at three o'clock in the morning and when no one else is around, they're not sure what they believe in. Uh, all of those things lend, lend themselves to having really turbulent uh, interpersonal relationships um, and, and a sense of self that is so adjustable. They can be a, very, they can be a chameleon, they can sort of fit in everywhere. Um, but at the same time, have a sense of emptiness. Okay. Sounds pretty awful to have that disorder. And I know that it's awful for people who are dealing with it, you know, uh, in a relationship or family, but it sounds like it's particularly awful to have. It really is a challenge. At the same time, it, it's, it's probably among the most stigmatized of illnesses in the sense of ask most any psychiatrist or psychologist, 
what is the, the, the diagnosis in a person walking in your office that you really don't want? They won't say schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or alcoholism. They'll say, oh, I, I don't, don't give me another patient with borderline personality disorder. But at the same time, these can be exciting, artistic, uh, successful, um, intriguing, uh, and fun people as well. They're just dealing with challenges that uh, are part of their life, sometimes related to traumas in, uh, earlier in their life. Right. And so this is something that develops in childhood? Uh, it's usually recognized by adolescence, um, mm -hmm. where these extremes come out. Of course, when when you talk about issues of identity and impulsivity, uh, you can think of the term uh, borderline adolescent as kind of a redundancy because uh, all adolescents uh, struggle with that to some degree. But we're, we're talking about extremes of that. And it generally is recognized in the mid-20s as the most common time. Um, it's usually associated with other disorders. Uh, it usually doesn't stand alone. It's frequently associated with depression, anxiety, uh, substance abuse, sometimes eating disorders, ADHD, some of the symptoms overlap, uh, and they can sort of camouflage each other too. And it's also, it's a cluster B disorder in the DSM-5. So it's in the same category, category as antisocial and narcissistic and um, histrionic, right? That's correct. They're all kind of related to emotional kind of um, mm -hmm. uh, ways of responding. Right. But borderline is a lot different than uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and I think what makes it one of the things I should say that makes it very difficult to deal with is that this person is able to demonstrate love and affection. But then they take it away. And so people really have a hard time understanding. Do they love me? Do, I, do they not love me? And they get stuck in the um, fluctuating moods. They get caught up in being driven by those fluctuating moods, right? Yeah, I think so. In, in many ways, there is a complementary um, uh, capacity in both. I mean, typically in a narcissistic personality, there's a lack of, of real sensitivity and empathy, whereas in typically in a stereotype um, person with uh, stereotypical borderline symptoms, there's an excess of emotions and sensitivity. So, uh, someone with BPD can read people very well, sometimes being overly sensitive to some of the factors they see. You know, in the last um, five years or so, as I've learned more about BPD, I've EPD, I've come to understand that one of my family members has it. And um, it explains so much because this is a person who I could be very close with and then all of a sudden would tell me that I'm the enemy and I, you know, I'm working against her and it, 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 was, and it would come out of nowhere. I would get these phone calls that start accusing me of being the enemy when, in fact, we were very close. And so, um, but this person is was also very um, successful, very artistic, very musical. 
those kind of things, very successful and very likable to those who didn't have to experience these mood shifts. But um, anyone that was close to her had a very difficult time. And um, so we both grew up in a home with a narcissistic mother. Um, can that be something that can kick this disorder off? Yeah, I think frequently there is a, uh, a history of, of difficulty with um, connection, with attachment, um, uh, and not infrequent, not, not always, but a not infrequent background, uh, in addition to a history of, of abuse. But even absent that, there's, there's not uh, infrequently a history of a mothering figure who is either narcissistic, detached, un, uninvolved, mm -hmm. where there isn't a real connection with human beings or a sense of what emotions are reasonable and, and workable as a child grows, or the opposite, a clinging uh, mothering figure that doesn't allow the child to separate and individuate and just sort of maintains a clinging dependency that makes it also difficult to begin dealing with interpersonal relationships in the world. What are the subconscious mechanisms, if you can, you know, in layman's terms, that cause a child to begin to develop this way? Is it, you know, NPD is kind of a maladaptive coping mechanism on steroids. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a it's pretty much when they make that decision, that's pretty much it. Okay, um, how does borderline develop um probably the, the the primary underlying dynamic is what's referred to as splitting okay uh, a in in childhood we're we're used to black and white kind of things fairy tales are set up that way they're the good guys and the bad guys right. we don't deal children can't deal with nuances the childhood fairy tales don't talk about the evil queen who may, maybe had a rough childhood and maybe we need to understand her more or why is snow white sleeping around with the seven little people and <laughs> the, the, the the differences there are no grays there's the good guys and the bad guys and um and they're split there's a there's a good and the bad and what seems to happen primarily in borderline personality is that childhood view of the world doesn't mature into beginning to see the gray, that there remains that way. And in, in the view of someone with stereotypical, typical borderline characteristics, people are seen as the good Joe and the bad Joe. Uh, there's a good person and a bad person. And when things are fine, they're not just good, they're great. People with borderline personality love beyond measure those who they will come to revile without reason at some point. Because once that good Joe does something disappointed, there it isn't understood within that context suddenly he reverts to bad joe mm. and um it's very hard to to bring those different perceptions together uh to see that that good people have have flaws and and flawed people may have good intentions it's one or the other and that splitting re results in a tendency to devalue people or idealize, the, idealize them in ways that become unreasonable. Mm. I can really relate to being on the receiving end of that, you know, and feeling like 
my, the judgment was extreme and unfair and irrational and there was nothing I could say to change it. It, it just, it, it switched and that was, that's what it was, you know, it was very, very difficult um, to be on the receiving end of that. So um, what are some of the behaviors that somebody may recognize that may indicate uh, borderline personality disorder? Um, I, I think the inconsistency that we've been kind of referring to, the tendency to see things as sort of overly wonderful um, and then and then negative, and a tendency to find those moods dependent on where they are. I mean, I mean that's a difference between um, say the mood swings you see in borderline personality and the mood swings you see in say bipolar disorder which are usually more extensive, which may or may not be related to the environment. In borderline personality, things are wonderful and they can become suicidal just on the basis out of proportion to what the stimulants are. A tendency for inappropriate uh, anger. You may say something kind of, you know, mildly negative and get a result that seems way out of proportion in terms of rageful outbursts. Um, I think seeing those kinds of changes there, I think the, the typical um, kind of thing is a sort of uh, uh, what you see in a, uh, in the crazy ex-girlfriend kind of thing. The person who was, um, I, I'm, I'm saying girlfriend because th although BPD is really prevalence 50-50 among men and women, those diagnosed are usually women. Well, 75% of those diagnosed are women. So it tends to be more female so it was sort of that that um that really fun girlfriend you had in college who was a lot of fun and very smart and very artistic and great to be with but got a little nutty at times in terms of just being extremes of things everything was taken to the nth percent hmm. okay are um people with this disorder controlling and manipulative I think because of the frantic fear of abandonment, they can be very clingy and very manipulative. Um, but, uh, and again, a stereotype, and these are stereotypes. This is, you know, there, there's a long range of health and some are healthier in that range and some um, more, uh, more impaired. But I think, uh, for example, a tendency to threaten suicide or threaten, uh, you know, if you leave me, I, uh, I don't know what I'll do kind of thing can be very manipulative. I've noticed, I kind of labeled it, in, you know, with my very limited amount of knowledge on this um, as sort of a push-pull relationship. You know, it, 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 sometimes they're full in, sometimes they push you away. It's like it's really, you just don't know where you stand in these relationships. Can you, can a person who has been um, sort of emotionally ousted through this splitting black and white thinking, can they redeem themselves? Can they find a way back to uh, being liked again or trusted? Oh, yes. Um, I think you're, you're talking about the push-pull is a good way of, of, of putting it because they're really dealing with contradictory fears. On the one hand, there is this desperate fear of being abandoned. 
So there's a tendency to cling, but there's also a desperate fear of being overwhelmed, controlled, losing any, any primitive sense of identity that they have, because that's something they're trying to establish. So there is a sense of like, please don't leave me, please don't leave me. But then, oh my God, you're trying to control me, mm -hmm. uh, which is why it becomes a real conflagration when someone with narcissistic personality mm -hmm. hooks up with somebody with borderline personality, because you see the real push, push, pull. But what I think has been established very well in the last decade or more is that most people with BPD get better um, with or without treatment. Uh, there, there tends to be a maturing out of a lot of the impulsivities, a lot of the self-destructive behavior uh, that begins, at least for the higher functioning people, a, a better realization of how uh, of how their their life is becoming chaotic. It isn't the rest of the world. It's really their behaviors. And they can begin with a maturing process um, such that the vast majority, more than 90% over a lifetime, really lose the defining symptoms that, the defining criteria that define borderline personality. Hmm. Are they triggered by... Um say, a parent who contributed to the development of this? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. Say that again. Okay. So somebody, an adult who has borderline, can they be triggered um, into, into switching, sort of, um, the splitting, by a parent who may have been sort of responsible for the development of it? So in other words, if you have a parent who was, he felt abandoned or not seen or not heard or whatever, um, and then you go on and you live your life, but you have these brief times where you have to see this parent, can that trigger the, the um, splitting? Yeah, I think so. I think that kind of sort of can bring things back. And in some cases, it can even result in a sort of a transient, almost quasi-psychotic experience. I mean, exposure to a great stress, like maybe being confronted with a trauma, maybe a person who traumatized uh, this, say, in childhood or something, can sometimes lead, lead to brief periods of dissociation where there's a sense that, that things aren't real, that they're not real, or a sense of paranoia which for all the world can look like a, a full-blown psychosis, but it's transient, it's stress-related, and once the stress is removed and things settle down, it disappears. Really? Okay. That's really interesting. I had a client who had a psychotic episode out of nowhere um, and claimed that um, he never have had had one. He was in his 40s, never had had one before. And I thought, well, that's really odd, but now you're explaining this, so that it's beginning to make a little more sense. That certainly happens, and it's really mysterious when you see it, because as I said, it looks for all the world like, oh my God, this suddenly you're having this, this psychotic break, this person, I missed this schizophrenia diagnosis, but they wake up the next morning and the stress is relieved and it's life gone. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my client began to hear voices and got very paranoid and um, it scared me. And I said, I, you know, you need a, you need to see a doctor. You need to see a psychiatrist. I'm not equipped to 
to be helping you right now. Um, but I didn't know what I was looking at. Of course, I'm not trained to know that. But this really explains that, um, you know, because I was thinking, oh, come on, you have had, you know, in, in your 40s, you must have had a psychotic break somewhere along the line, or you wouldn't just have one. But there was a very stressful situation, a very traumatic stress up situation that kicked it off. That that can happen. Okay, interesting. What about um, I've read that um, people with BPD um, sort of uh, they're they're the helpers. They're the Florence Nightingales of the world. They're the ones who want to you know have this purpose of always being there, the first one there to help people when they're going through something. Um, they have this charitable impulse, and I think it's it helps really to define their sense of self or give them a sense of self. What is your thoughts on that? I, I think that we do see that a lot. I think um, oftentimes uh, part of it is to feel some sense of acceptance, of identity, of being needed, um, which is why it's not unusual to see people with BPD symptoms who are very much attracted to social work, um, to nursing, to helping uh, professions as a way of kind of establishing a sense of identity and also feeling a connection of belonging. Hmm. So how are there, um, are there like episodes that can happen like monthly or um, sort of a regular, like a, like cyclical is what I want to say, or can it be kicked off by hormones like, you know, female hormones, like the menstrual cycle or something like that? Yeah, I think um, there, there's a vulnerability that can be uh, uh, triggered by, say, in women, pregnancy or menopausal changes um, or uh, drug use or drug exposure. <clears throat> Uh, that, that there is there is kind of a as with many medical illnesses there in borderline personality it's generally accepted that appears to be a genetic vulnerability which given environmental stresses uh, a person may be vulnerable to some more vulnerable than other people so it's a mixture of nature nurture kind of kind of things and when other changes come in that vulnerability gets uh, expressed could somebody appear to be more stable with their emotions and then just really have it have these episodes happen around the times of you know hormonal changes women i'm speaking of uh, around hormonal changes or would you see it in other uh, at other times yeah um, most people who would fulfill criteria to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder appear perfectly normal on you know on first meeting uh, and in many cases uh, very interesting people and and attractive people to be with um, but given the, given the stresses from from these from hormonal changes or other exposure uh, certainly things can then be expressed that um, you know, lead to pathological behavior. So I know with narcissistic personality disorder, there's a diagnostic criteria of nine traits, 
person only has to have five in order to be to be diagnosed with this personality disorder. What is the diagnostic criteria for borderline? Well, currently it is the same. There are, uh, as is true in much of medicine, other uh, medical illnesses, and but particularly in psychiatry, you have a number of criteria. In BPD, there are nine criteria. One, in order to fulfill the the diagnosis uh, criteria, you have to a person has to exhibit five five or more of the nine, which is is unfortunately a very artificial way of putting it because that means if they have five criteria and they no longer are say cutting on themselves, then they only have four criteria and boom, they're not they're not borderline okay. anymore. Either is or he isn't, and. Um, what we're seeing, and I think as things evolve in the next iteration of accepted definitions, we're going to see less of this categorical approach and more of a dimensional approach. There will be more a sense of degree of illness. Uh, there'll be a sense of more of how borderline-ish is this person in a sense um, <clears throat> and, and judged more on, on a kind of a stereotype and how close one matches to the stereotype, uh, which I think will be more helpful and less sort of stigmatizing. So are you talking about like a spectrum? Or... Yes. Okay. Yeah. That, and indeed, that's what, that's what you usually see. Certainly people who are identified with BPD are realistically on a very wide spectrum, many very high functioning, very successful in, in many areas, but for example, maybe uh, really have difficulty with relationships, married and divorced several times and can't, can't find some stability there. And on the lower end, people who just really can't, can't stay with a job or um, uh, really are unsuccessful in many endeavors. So how, how is this treated? Because you feel like it is a treatable. I've read that, you know, that's um, the one disorder where the psychiatrists and psychologists say, no, thank you, <laughs> you know? um, because it's from from what I've read, it's something that ha they this person has to really commit to a long term um, treatment of this. And because it otherwise they will um, kind of lose what they've gained. So tell me what the truth is about. But well, well, certainly that was the myth until maybe in the last 10 years or so that these people never got better. It's useless. They're going to make you crazy if you're a therapist mm -hmm. and, um, you know, stay away. Um, but really over the last 10 and more years, there, there have developed a number of approaches uh, the primary approach, though, is um, psychotherapy, and there have been several that have been developed. There are medications that can be useful. Um, mostly, they, they're treating the comorbid issues. If there's depression involved or there's um, anxiety or ADHD involved, treating that or alcoholism or substance abuse, you're treating that with uh, a variety of things, including medicines that may be helpful. But some medicines also seem to help some of the impulsivities. Uh, high doses of um, of uh, anti typical antidepressants sometimes settle things down. Low doses of um, mood stabilizers, antipsychotic drugs even tend to be somewhat helpful. But all that aside, the primary treatment approach is psychotherapy. And there have been several specific psychotherapies that have been developed 
primarily for, for borderline personality disorder, although they're also used in others. Probably the most um, studied is DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, which is a form of intensive um, cognitive therapy where in the classical model of it, one attends group therapy every week, individual therapy every week that is mostly looking at skills training. Here's what you do when you're feeling angry. Here's what you do when you feel like you want to cut yourself. Here's what you do when you're binging and purging is coming up and your impulses are getting out of control. Some cognitive behaviors. Um, another, another common approach has been what's called mentalization-based treatment, which is more a sort of a combination where there's uh, encouragement and training in thinking through what's going on. I'm having this feeling, what is the other person, uh, what is he doing that's stimulating my uh, extreme emotions? And why are my emotions going up? Where you're sort of thinking through your behavior. Mm -hmm. um, another form is what's called transference-focused uh, therapy, which is more of a psychoanalytic um, individual therapy of usually a couple times a week where you're really dealing with psychoanalytic, psychodynamic issues of, of um, how you're relating to different people, the transference. Um, schema therapy looks at um, um, past uh, uh, paradigms in one's life is another form that's been developed that way. Um, there's also been something that has really the benign but really useful term that's just called that's called good psychiatric management, um, which is basically kind of combines a lot of these things. And it has to do a lot with uh, first educating the person, telling them this is what you have. This is what we call it. These behaviors are what's called borderline personality. This is what you do when, when you have these stresses, you have difficulty with your sense of who you are. Uh, this is what we're going to talk about. And it, it and it's also used with individual group therapy. Family therapy can be involved too to, if the family is is not terribly hopelessly unhealthy. Um, so the, these are there are there are a variety of, of approaches. They all have been studied to some degree. They all seem to be successful. But there's also been studies that follow people who don't get any therapy, and many of them usually it takes much longer. But many of them get just get better too as time goes on. So what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's with this um, disorder, treating symptoms, awareness of symptoms, um, tools for coping with symptoms is the strategy rather than going into the core issues of what caused it. Um, there are really both. Um, certainly transference focused therapy goes more into some of the past um, uh, contributors. Schema therapy uh, also does goes more into past. Some of the cognitive behaviors, though, are less involved in, in kind of past traumas or past psychodynamic issues. Uh, and some sort of combine some of both. Hmm. Interesting. Um is your practice largely um, seeing people with this disorder? Um, well, I'm not seeing as many uh, that as many anymore. Um, but during the time that that it was active, there was a fair amount. I mean, they, 
roughly uh, in outpatient psychiatry, um, uh, statistics say it's about 10% of people have borderline and inpatients, it's about 20%. Mm -hmm. um, for me personally, I, I saw a fair amount of that. I saw a lot with ADHD and uh, the other kind of um, uh, psychiatric illness. I had a fairly diverse practice, but yeah, there was a lot of focus on borderline. Do these people, um, I'm asking this question because I've had many people come to me who were um, incorrectly diagnosed with having um, bipolar. Um, do a lot of these people get falsely um, diagnosed as having bipolar because of these mood swings? Absolutely. Happens all the time. In fact, there was one study um, that uh, demonstrated that for people that come to the accurate diagnosis of BPD, usually took about four or five years of erroneous uh, diagnoses, um, partly because it, it wasn't really accepted for a long time, this diagnosis, and it's partly because it, it, it used to be, and still is, a stigmatizing diagnosis. It's much nicer for a person to be called bipolar than it is to be called a dirty, rotten, no good borderline. Uh, everybody's first wife was a borderline. Uh, it was always tended to be kind of a negative uh, kind of thing. Whereas bipolar, you can't help it. But borderline, you're just being a nasty. <laughs> That's funny. And and that and and those who are diagnosed with um, bipolar are often put on something like lithium, which exacerbates the symptoms of the disorder that they actually have. <laughs> Or the um, sometimes we're talking about like abuse, uh, the, the symptoms of abuse of what the person's dealing with. Lithium can really aggravate that and sort of make them have a harder time dealing with the issues. Um, is that you? you well, li actually, lithium sometimes is a mood stabilizer and sometimes can be helpful a little bit borderline, but it's certainly true that when I would see patients, they would usually come with a whole load of drugs they've been on and have been on. And, you know, when, when they were acting out, they'd get another uh, antidepressant, another antipsychotic, another mood stabilizer, um, uh, yeah, like lamictal or lithium or Depakote or, or um, uh, something else. And part of the thing is, is determining that, that they didn't need all those medicines, um, first of all, and then really kind of rectifying what, what really needed to be done. In some cases, like I said, medicines can be helpful, um, but I think that it, it is easier to sort of say, I have mood swings, okay, you're bipolar. There's a significant difference, but bipolar mood swings last longer, um, uh, and they don't have this whipsaw effect, and there are other differences. And and that's why I feel like, you know, these, uh, I don't understand these misdiagnoses because um, with bipolar disorder, you have prolonged times of depression and prolonged times of mania, and um, it's not like a it's not like a roller coaster, right? Exactly, exactly. Right, and you have periods of sort of stabilization in true bipolar disorder, whereas again, like you said, the roller coaster is always there in in borderline. Mm -hmm. Right, so. I would imagine that somebody that was trained would be able to see the difference. But so so that leads me to this question. What kind of training is there now for um, students who are 
um, majoring in in this kind of you know in psychiatry or psychology or whatever. Uh, is there better training in regard to BPD? I think so. Um, I think there. Uh, I, I can I can tell you when. Um, what, what prompted me to write my first book, the the uh, hate you don't leave me was um, there really was I, we had developed in St. Louis a, a short term tr treatment program specifically for borderline personality, which at that time, for many of my colleagues, wasn't accepted even as a diagnosis. It was just sort of kind of a, a thing you you, you uh, endowed on a on a patient you just didn't like. And it, there really was thought to be no treatment, nothing you could do with it. Mm. But most most of the literature was in sort of psychoanalytic um, books, and there and people went, who who came to our program said, "I want to read about this. I don't know anything about it," which is what prompted me to kind of try to put it um, uh, for not only for academics but also for for the lay public. And I think over the years, there's been so there really what. As I said, there were people who just didn't said, I don't believe in the diagnosis. And I think nowadays there is a greater appreciation, not only for the diagnosis, but the fact that it's more common than people thought too. Um, depending on which study you want to believe, it certainly is as prevalent in our population and maybe more so than say bipolar disorder, even though bipolar disorder uh, research at the NIMH and, and federal uh, uh, endowments gets 20 times more uh, funding than research on borderline personality or other personality disorders. Hmm. Interesting. Um, one thing that I that I know is that um, children who are exposed to hostile in, um, environments while they're growing up, <clears throat> there is a physiological change to the, the way their brain develops. The hippocampus or there's a small they've been they've done studies. So People who have had all kinds of abuse in childhood do have emotional regulation issues in general, right? Yes. And there have been studies that do show that the um, some of the connections in the brain uh, are different in, in many patients that have been studied with, with bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. and especially in the formation of the brain, the earliest formation is in the center of, the, of our brains, the uh, amygdala, the uh, hippocampus, the, the areas that were that had to do with the most primitive life forms that were initially just reflexes and then became emotional kind of fight flight that animals have. And then eventually as we developed over that over more and more layers, we finally get to what distinguishes human beings, the prefrontal cortex. That's the thinking part. And the connections between the deeper parts, the amygdala, the limbic system, which is the emotional system, and the prefrontal cortex, some of those connections are limited in borderline personality disorder. So that the, the fact that we have an emotion and then can't intellectually say, okay, wait a minute, I'm really angry at that guy. I'm not gonna punch him in the face. Uh, I'm just going to walk away, or I'm going to uh, I'm going to confront him, or I'm going to do something else. That connection between the emotion you're feeling and the logic uh, of of our of our thinking brain, um, some of those connections are disrupted. There's so many things. I mean, you know, unfortunately, parents don't know how to 
always know how to raise children. There's so many things that can go wrong, you know, that can cause us a lifetime of problems, you know, and I, whether our parents intended or not, you know, I mean, just uh, a lot of arguments, constant arguing, which is how I grew up, always arguing, ar arguing, arguing. And I found it to be terrifying as a child. Um, so that caused me issues, I know. So if, if um, someone is living with somebody with this uh, personality disorder, is there a way they can help manage the um, frequency or duration of the episodes? Um, yeah, I think there are a number of um, approaches. Um, uh, uh, the last book I wrote, uh, uh, basically talking to uh, people with borderline personalities, or just sort of outlines just a whole variety of, uh, of uh, kind of styles. But I think it, it involves a combination of of really being able to balance expressions of support for this person you care for, that you're committed to, a sense of empathy, of understanding. Uh, understand empathy doesn't mean sympathy. You're not feeling sorry for them, but you're sort of, un I understand why you why you get so angry at times. And, but also balancing those things with a sense of reality, a sense of truth that, um, you know, when you yell and scream at me like that, it upsets me and I'm gonna need to, I'm gonna walk out the door at those times. Just being able to develop some combination of those features to kind of, um, be able to set boundaries, having some sort of boundaries in what you can do with that person, what you can do for that person, and where where you have to put a boundary up and you and you have to relieve yourself from it. So boundaries are can be useful here. I'm sorry, they can be boundaries can be very useful. Um, oh, they're, they're going to be necessary in, in in such situations. I think. Right. In terms Otherwise, you could get swallowed up. That, and then if you do get swallowed up, then you lose a piece of yourself, and then you get angry and start to kind of lash out in ways that only reinforce all of the stuff. See, I knew you didn't love me. See, I knew you didn't care about me. See, I knew you were mad at me. Um, I knew you would. You, 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 you know, all these things that I was accusing you of. Now you've just um, done that. One of the features of this is what's called projective identification. When you sort of project onto the other person things that you're really uh, uh, seeing in yourself. So it, so it, for many people who interact with a borderline personality, we, they see examples of that when they sort of say, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, when I, when I sort of kind of keep taunting you until you lose your temper, then it becomes, see, you said, I'm angry. I'm not angry. You're the one that's angry. Um, and that sort of sucks a person in, which just reinforces the whole cycle. That happens with narcissistic abuse as well. Yeah. They goad you into, into these, into freaking out. They push your buttons and push your buttons and push your buttons until you blow. And then they say, see, you're the crazy one, not me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy living with people like this. Um, why um, the word borderline? is uh, uh, an odd kind of uh, label for something like this. Where did that come from? Back in, it was 1939, this um, uh, a psychoanalyst um, 
was dealing with with individuals and basically back in the 1930s uh individuals in psychiatry were developed were were uh, separated into psychotic and neurotic patients psychotic being those who had lost uh connection with the, with reality and neurotic were, were the more anxious depressed people who were amenable to psychoanalysis and uh stern this dr stern who first coined the term found that there were patients who were sort of on the borderline between these because um, they appeared on the surface to be neurotic. But then when he put on the couch, then sometimes they would devolve and they would become psychotic and they would sort of couldn't handle that kind of uh, uh, looseness that is required in psychoanalytic treatment. So he sort of called them borderline. Mm. And people sort of picked up, picked that up. And then, uh, and then, and then it, it lost it, and they were and in the DSM two, uh, back in the fifties, they they were in the schizophrenia realm. They were called oh. super neurotic schizophrenia or um, something like that. And then finally, in in the uh, I guess in the eighties, when the DSM three came, it was finally reified as one of the personality disorders, and that sort of reinvigorated the term borderline again, even though. In the, in the international classification of diagnoses, which is very similar to our notorious DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, they have played with the, with the term um, um, uh, emotionally unstable personality hmm. disorder. But even that is split into impulsive and borderline. So borderline is sort of stuck around all these, all these years, even though they're not really on the border of anything, really. Right. It just stuck from the old diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, um, the DSM-5, there's a lot that's not in the DSM-5. Why, why are they, why um, is the American Psychiatric Association so slow to make changes or to embrace new concepts? Uh, I think they, I, I, I think they feel a, a, a real burden to be very careful. Um, I mean, as you know, it wasn't until the 70s that homosexuality was no longer deemed a pathology. Mm, wow. Um, and that took, you know, so that's only been 50 years uh, since that happened. Prior to that, that was considered um, uh, psychopathological. So I think they go very slowly and very carefully uh sometimes uh too much and and they and like and like anything else i think they go in in sort of styles in the up until the 50s psychiatry was really uh controlled by um psychoanalytic thinking freudian type thinking um and starting in the 60s uh there was a push almost to the other extreme that everything was that, that psychoanalysis was worthless and everything was biological and everything should be uh, done to, to biological terms, which is why we got into the categories where you've got this syndrome, this syndrome, this syndrome, and this is what you got. And, and, you know, so, so now I think we're coming back a little bit towards the middle where we can appreciate that, that, that nature and nurture kind of go together and there are biological determinants that, are not inevitable, but are vulnerabilities. And there are situational things that have to do that are real things. And childhood is important and it isn't to be ignored as many thought in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and biology is important that you wouldn't convince the 1950s psychoanalyst. Interesting. Yeah, um, childhood is very important. In, in it, you know, people used to think, oh, you grow up and you get over it. That doesn't happen, you know. And I'm glad that people are getting uh, more open to embracing the the child within because it's so important in helping people to um, become the best version of themselves to, to to be able to understand, you know, what that child missed is still missing, really, right? Yes. Yeah. Um. You know, with um. Uh, with NPD abuse, um, complex PTSD is very common because it's been years of, of trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma. And I know that the DSM-5 does not really recognize CTPSD. How do you feel about it? I'm, I sort of go back and forth with it. It just seems sometimes it, it, it's, it, it, sort of confuses the situation a little bit um genetically there are you know because there were there was a group of people some years ago that thought well really um as i said before people have sort of denied the existence of borderline that it's really bipolar a form of bipolar disorder was what some uh professionals thought others thought no it's really part of the ptsd and in genetic determinants, it's in terms that they're really different, that bipolar disorder does have certain genetic markers that are really different from borderline, and PTSD does as well. Um, so I think it sort of confuses it a little bit because um, uh, some people, the, the symptoms of CPTSD, of complex PTSD, are basically the same as borderline personality. The difference is, is there's a trauma. Oh, wow. And it's true that Many people with borderline personality have a trauma that would fit a CPTSD. Not all of them do. So it sort of kind of confuses my mind a little bit. That's interesting. So I know that um, people who have antisocial personality disorder, which um, that's the psychopath, psychopathy and sociopathy, basically, um, they're all, they all have narcissistic personality disorder included in that, or as part of this disorder. They're all narcissists. It doesn't go the other way. And not all narcissists have antisocial, but <clears throat> I know that within that cluster B, um, that there's not always a clear distinction of one disorder versus another, because there, you can have aspects of all of them. And you even brought in some other disorders that are not in the cluster B, <clears throat> um, you know, um, grouping, so category. So um, can somebody with borderline have aspects of narcissism and histrionic or so forth and so on? Oh, yes. Yeah, I think um, when I mentioned that it, it rarely stands alone. It usually has another disorder. Sometimes another disorder might be uh, another personality disorder. And that's, again, one of the difficulties with our categorical way of, of, uh, of uh, defining it. Well, let's see, he's got five of the nine for borderline. And come to think of it, he's got five of the nine for narcissism. So he's sort of both. Uh, it, it gets a little confusing. Um, 
and there are certain biases too. I mean, I think if you take a um, an individual um, who is, uh, well, take a scenario. Uh, this person is in a bar, drinks too much, gets intoxicated, picks a fight with somebody, throws a few things around, starts cussing. Uh, they call the police and the person um, gets a little rough and maybe then gets emotional and bursts out crying. If it's a woman, that if and a social worker came accompanying the police officer, they say, this is a borderline personality. We're going to take it in the emergency room. <laughs> if it's a man, they're going to say he's an alcoholic and an antisocial personality. We're going to take him to jail. So there's this, wow. there's this gender bias, I think, that goes on in how we tend to diagnose um, uh, people as well. Hmm. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. So, so that's where this sort of spectrum theory is kind of making strides. It's take kind yeah, of, I think, so. and I think that's where we're going to be the labeling, yeah. right? The labeling, getting away from the labeling. And uh, I think people do have problems with the label. And, uh, but I know that, um, people who are um, exposed long-term to those with these cluster B personality disorders um, have a particularly difficult time overcoming their own um, damage as a result of it. Does the same thing happen with when you're living with somebody with bipolar? Does it have the same effect as a personality disorder would have on someone who's experiencing that emotional abuse? I think it can if, particularly if you don't understand uh, what it's about, um, uh, if the person is sort of in denial about what the, what the symptoms are, if they don't really recognize what's going on, I think uh, just like living with someone with substance abuse where um, mm or alcohol, a tendency to not really see the extremes of what, what is happening. Right. Um, yeah, that's true. That's true. So how would someone who has listened to this and thinks, okay, well, that really describes the person that I'm living with or the parent or something like that. Is there an approach to getting that person into help, you know, getting help or therapy or um, I think, um, yeah, I, I, if, if, if the, if the designated patient is very resistant, I think it can be important for the other, uh, to get therapy. And from there, a lot of times you can glide into that saying, you know, um, I'm going to see a therapist and it would really be helpful if you came with me, um, to see somebody so we can work on some of these things because there may be a lot of projection on the other person saying you know it's not me it's you um yeah you know you push my buttons that's why i get angry all the time mm -hmm. um uh so i think i think the other person needs to figure out a way to handle it and a lot of times uh that can be a way to make an entree so that you can get both in to get in uh and then that person sometimes can then see what the um uh, what they need to work on. Do do borderlines have the same reaction as narcissists do? When um, and I don't mean to. I, I know you don't like to identify them as borderlines. I'm just saying this, but 
people with this personality disorder, I should say, do they have the same extreme resistance and reaction to the diagnosis as somebody with NPD would have? No, I think there's much more extremes with narcissistic personality because the personality disorder itself is a cover for feelings usually in the stereotype of feelings of insecurity and helplessness. And if that, if that shield gets penetrated, that individual falls into a, a deep, deep depression that is so destructive. And so there's a desperate need to hold on to that shield in right. someone with NPD. Whereas BPD, there is more vulnerability. There is more sensitivity usually. Um, there is more, uh, usually a better insight to some degree on average, I would say. So I think it, I think it's a lot harder penetrating that shield in NPD. Mm -hmm. Do people feel a sense of relief when they understand why they've been going through this? Um, it, it, it's variable. Um, <laughs> the, what I can tell you is um, the established experts in the field generally recommend it's important to educate the individual to say, you have borderline personality disorder. Here's what it is. And you need you need to confront that. Um, and for some people, that is a relief. You know, all my life, I've had all these things I didn't know where it was. Now I have a name for it. And that's a relief. And that makes me feel better. But I think in some cases that I've seen, um, it becomes almost a badge um, sort of saying, hey, you can't do that. I have borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. and, that, and, that, and so it becomes a, a shield of, it just explains it, that I can go on and keep doing what I'm doing. So um, uh, I, I quibble a little bit with, with uh, other experts in the field who say you should always uh, make it right above board and, and lay it on. I think in most cases that's true, but there are cases where I think they want to tread a little softly and let them come to it. Because um, and that, and that I find is more helpful when when the patient comes to me and says, you know, I've been looking into things and I think I have symptoms of borderline personality disorder. Could that be? And then they can really begin to confront their behaviors themselves rather than being endowed upon them. And good point. I was actually writing that as you were saying that using their diagnosis as a as a out to continue yeah. behavior. Right? Yeah. I could see where that would happen. So, you know, this, that's why people have to go to experts in these areas because they can, they can get really um, on the wrong track when they don't, you know. So are you still practicing? I don't see, I'm just consulting now. I'm not seeing individual patients now. Okay. You're consulting um, on the on borderline on the Mostly, yeah. borderline? Okay. Yeah, so you're and still do some writing and, and things okay. there, research and stuff. Yeah. Interesting. And um, I know that you have two books. Um, tell us about the two books that you have. Well, actually, a third book. I have one talking to a loved one with borderline personality. Oh, okay. Yeah, tell um, us about those. Uh, well, I think you mentioned the first two. Um, uh, the, the, this one, the others have references and are used, can be used academically as well. The third one, it was just basically for individuals in terms of basically what it says, talking to a loved one with borderline personality. Oh, okay. And that's what it's called? I'm sorry, what? It's called talking to a loved one with borderline personality yes. disorder? Okay. Uh, 
<laughs> and just developing different, um, recognizing certain um, presentations of when your loved one has borderline personality and ways to deal with specific kinds of um, situations. I mean, so often they're, you're confronted with a variety of confrontations, such as, you know, the sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't kind of thing, where no matter what you say, you're going to be in trouble and recognizing that you're in that position and how maybe to avoid that. You know, which dress makes me look fatter? Um, I, whatever I say, oh, you think I'm fat? No, you don't think I'm fat. Oh, you're not being truthful. Oh, you think. <laughs> and, and how you can kind of confront different dilemmas like that. Is this largely responsible for divorces? You know, I mean, I would imagine living with somebody, being married to someone like this could be really challenging because you really don't have that the peace and the predictability of that, you know. Yeah, and, and I and really that's that's really the last chapter of that last book is is kind of knowing when you need to walk away. Um, uh, it's not an inevitability. As I said before, many of these people get better. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, they all get, most, almost all get certainly better. And depending on the commitment and the dedication, you can certainly make these things work over time. But I guess recognizing what you're dealing with and how to deal with it and making sure that that energy is is worth it um, is important. And but you're right; it can be it can be very difficult. It can be very difficult. Well, um, is there a, a website or something that people can go to to find uh, a psychiatrist or or psycho psychotherapist who? Um, specializes in borderline personality disorder? Um, yeah, uh, I don't think, I, uh, there are a few therapists who say that anymore because they're afraid of getting flooded. Okay, <laughs> okay. all right. With that, so there, there, there are, are few people that I'm aware of anyway who want to say, oh yeah, that's my specialty, send me <laughs> yeah. uh, They don't want that. Um, which is why in my practice, um, I had a nice balance between people with BPD who took, who were very gratifying when, as they got better over time and people with ADHD who got better in a week or two oh, wow. with, with certain treatments and, and having a, having a balance. Um, but there are, there, there are many websites. Um, I, I don't want to Right. So I know there's like a lot of psychology today articles. Yeah. And if we and so if you search, you can probably yeah, yeah, probably you can find doctors. And I do frequently um get requests from that. And usually a good place to start. There, there are several and, and they're in, in all of my books, uh, references of places that usually uh treat their uh most are on the east coast. Um okay. uh, uh, the um uh McLean in uh, uh, in Cambridge has a specialized, especially for borderline women. Uh, Westchester oh. Cornell in New York um, uh, has some specialty treatment, um, and there are several facilities. And I'll usually recommend contacting a local university or something. They can usually find. I have people on faculty who at least have experience in that area and can make recommendations. Okay, thank you. I think that's great. And I'm glad. So the other two books are, um, I, have it right here. Um, I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, and uh, Sometimes I Act Crazy. So <clears throat> these are all 
you know, these are all still available on Amazon? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Right, I've learned a lot. Great. I know my listeners have. Um, this really clears a lot of the um, the questions up because, yeah, you know, if you look up, is this treatable? <laughs> You're going to be like, no. <laughs> so um, I think that's encouraging for people who are <laughs> not only living with the disorder themselves or people who are whose loved ones have it. So this is very encouraging. And I thank you so much for being my guest today. Well, thank you. I enjoyed being with you today, Randy. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it too. Have a great day. Take care. You too. Okay. Bye. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.